Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. Um, the kids did a great job. Let me say publicly thank you to all the volunteers. Um, you guys are awesome. Uh, I mean, we had we had a, a, a perfect number of volunteers every night. We had guys who were able to float and do different things and um, just, you know, love the kids, connect with the kids, guys who were planning the different events that were going on and things like that. So um, you guys are awesome. Let me say thank you. Like, I love you guys. I appreciate you guys. Um, if you served in our camp this past week, know that, like, I mean, without you guys, like, I mean, like, we could have done it, but it would have been really hard, okay? Like, it would have been not good, all right? Like, only we only need Jesus. That's it. But, like, you guys really helped that happen. So, um, thank you guys for, uh, for, for doing that uh, this past week. So, uh, we're in Genesis chapter 41. Uh, it was a long chapter uh, that we read through this morning. So, thanks, Jeremy, for reading through that for us. Um, I want to give you guys a, a kind of a, this idea to consider as we begin our time. It's actually a quote uh, by a guy named Timothy Keller, and I found it to be really, really helpful in considering uh, kind of this transition that we observe taking place at this point in Genesis chapter 41, right? We have seen Joseph in um, a pit of sorts over the past few chapters, like figuratively, like literally, like in a pit. Uh, and now we see him through chapter 41 rising to this new position of power, right? We're going from pit to power a little bit, um, at least in, in terms of the way the world understands it and defines it. Obviously, the Lord has been working through Joseph in these really incredible ways, even going back um, to like our first introduction Introduction with him and these dreams and promises from the Lord for the future of Joseph that we have just been waiting on. Right, like we've just been waiting on this to happen because uh, we've seen Joseph go through a number of different hardships uh, before we finally find ourselves here in chapter forty-one. The, one of the some of the songs that we sang this morning were just were so spot on in terms of this uh, theological encouragement, this this belief and thought that God's word and the gospel draw us into. Right, in light of difficult circumstance, in light of trouble, in light of hardship, what we ought to believe, which we are in real need of having these ideas formed and shaped within us. Listen to what Timothy Keller says in distinguishing uh, the views of the world and, and even other world religions, that and the distinction between what that is and what that says and what the gospel is and what the gospel says. Listen to what Keller says. He writes this. He says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, Foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. Did you guys catch that, right? There, there's this distinction between the way that we oftentimes live in the world and this thought that is encouraged by the world and the thought that we see encouraged from God's word for his people. The distinction is this. On one side, it's soak up as much joy as you can because we know that joy in this life is not without interruption, is it? And enjoy the good times, enjoy the sweet times, enjoy the plentiful times, because without fail and without question, there will be seasons of difficulty, won't there? 
So the world says, soak it up, like be a sponge, right? Absorb it, store it up so that when times of difficulty come, like you're able to like persevere. You're able to make it through. There's a sense in which what we see from Genesis chapter 41 encourages this thought within us, right? Because we're, we're talking about uh, years of plenty and years of famine. And there is this storing up that is encouraged in order to make it through. The distinction that we find is in the life of Joseph. Joseph has been in a pit of sorrow for years, like an extended period of time that we very easily lose sight of because we've just turned our pages a couple of times, right? But, but if we think back to what we saw last week, I mean, we're talking like years and years and years of difficulty and trial and turmoil for Joseph in terms of circumstance, But if we go all the way back to our introduction to Joseph, what do we know? We know that God provides this dream for Joseph in which his brothers, his siblings, and his father are bowing themselves down before him. So in seasons of of hardship, there is this anticipation of joy that is to come. Things are difficult now. We're familiar with this. This is the story of human existence in many ways, right? Things are are difficult now, but there is this longing and there is this looking ahead and there is this expectation of indescribable joy that is to be brought about. This morning, we move from the pit to the pinnacle. We see this taking place in the life of Joseph. Let's consider what we saw in Genesis chapter 40. In Genesis chapter 40, Joseph helps Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker with their dreams. Remember, we talked about these two guys who had been tossed in prison, two guys that possessed a lot of power. Uh, We are left to assume that Pharaoh in some way felt that his life was in danger as a result of the position that these two guys served in. And so he sends them down to the pit with Joseph. Joseph helps these guys interpret a couple of dreams that they have, uh, at which point, as the story progresses, Pharaoh has a party. He lifts up the cupbearer's head. He restores him to his position. He, as we observed from Genesis chapter 41 this morning, hangs the chief baker. Things did not go out well for him. But what we find is the cupbearer forgetting Joseph. There was this promise that was made by the cupbearer that he would remember Joseph, right? You guys remember this, right? Hey, I'll interpret your dreams like the Lord has given me this gift. He's the one who does it, right? I'm just kind of the, 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 the conduit by which all of this takes place. Only remember me when you get out of here. I'm really tired of the pit. Okay, when you get out and you are restored as is to happen in light of this dream, remember me. What we find is that the cupbearer forgets Joseph. Only Joseph never forgets his dreams. And we said last week that we are in need of being reminded that God never forgets us. Right, Joseph is in the pit and he is, he is forgotten, right? Even, even as we read, right? I think some of the tension and struggle is that we forget how long he has been there. Like we are forgetful, even though like in these sequential weeks, we are engaging with the text, but God doesn't forget. 
had a great conversation with Ben Clark last week in light of our time in Genesis chapter 40, in which we kind of kind of dialogued around not only this realization that the Lord doesn't forget us, but the Lord is so gracious as to provide us with certain acts that we are able to, as his people, participate in that equip us to remember him. Do you understand what I'm talking about here? Here's a great illustration of that, right? Like the Lord gives us, he institutes this supper in which he calls his people to, as they take gathering, remember what he has done. Think about baptism. What is baptism? It's this, it's this, this display, right? Of, of what God does for us and that he, 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 buries uh, himself in the likeness of our death that we might be resurrected to new life, right? There's this sign and, and symbol that God is, is with us and that he is working in us. We have these things. The Lord gives them to us. And so God remembers us, but he also provides us with these certain practices in which we are able to remember him. In the midst of disappointment and delay, Joseph's trust in God is only deepened. Right? He's able to, to, to continually reflect on the Lord's commitment and work. This morning, there's a few things that I want, us to, I want us to consider. One from the text and one from the sermon. These two go hand in hand. At just the right time, in light of what we see here in Genesis chapter 41, at just the right time, God brings Joseph from the pit into this position of power for the purpose of suppressing death and sustaining his people. Let me say that one more time. At just the right time, God brings Joseph from the pit into a position of power. So we see taking place as we just simply read through Genesis chapter 41. But he does so purposefully. And we get a glimpse of that in Genesis 41 that provides you and I a glimpse of what God is doing in redemptive history. Just the right time, God brings Joseph from the pit into this position of power for the purpose of suppressing death and sustaining his people. God is through The life of Joseph suppressing death and sustaining and saving his people. Does this sound at all familiar? Like this is just dripping with gospel, okay? Like this ought to lead us to consider as we have tried to do over the past few weeks, the truer and better Joseph, right? Our King Jesus, who through his death suppresses death so that we might be sustained and saved, right? We're getting this wonderful picture through Genesis chapter 41 that we'll continue to to talk about. The encouragement for you and I is this, as we prepare to unpack the text, trust God. Do we sound like a broken record? I feel like we are every week saying, yes, we should trust God. Trust God and his work to affect history as he moves all of creation towards its desired outcome. Genesis 41 calls us to this, to trust God and his work in history, his power to move all of creation towards his desired outcome. Do you want to know where we're all going? That's a great question, isn't it? Later this afternoon, uh, Jacqueline and Mac and I, along with a friend of ours, will be going down to Florida to work with some students at a summer camp this next week. When we get into the car, a helpful question for us to ask is, hey, does anybody know where we're going? Right? 
Because we really want to end up in Panama City and not like Minneapolis, right? Like we really want to go to Panama City and not Pennsylvania, okay? And so knowing where we are going is extremely helpful. We are being called through what we observe in Genesis chapter 41 towards this realization that all of creation is moving towards God's desired outcome, exactly where he wants it to go. Even now, right, even now, Genesis 41 calls us to embrace this idea that God is working through situation and circumstance in the world to move everything where he desires it to go. We talk a lot about maybe um, like the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, his power and purpose. We, we understand that God does not, we do not worship a God who is, is just kind of like guessing or shooting from the hip or figuring it out as he goes. But he knows what is going on in the world and he knows what's going on in you and I and he knows what's going on around you and I and he is moving it all all of its individual pieces and its work as a whole towards his desired end. This mentality does a couple of things. Okay, it does a couple of things. It secures freedom from any and all forms of captivity. Right, the condition of the world and sin observable in creation. We mourn brokenness. We mourn brokenness, but we remain steadfast and confident in the work of our God. All of this encourages us to embrace an expanded view of God. What do we want to walk away from from Genesis chapter 41? Here's what we want to walk away with. We want to walk away with this expanded view of who God is. We want to embrace a big God whose word will stand as he empowers his people to stand. Does that make sense? Where we're going so far. I've given you a lot here because we've got a lot of text and so we're going to tackle it in some larger chunks. So I want you guys to know where we are going. Let's consider this first, this first big idea from Genesis chapter 41. The first 14 verses, which I want us to spend a little bit of time settling in on and around. This first big idea is this, that through Joseph, God asserts himself over Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt. What is God doing? God is asserting himself through Joseph over Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt. The first 14 verses make this really clear for us. God asserts himself, he displays his power in and and over the false gods and ideas of Egypt. Look with me at verse 1. We may or may not get through this today, guys. Prepare yourselves. Everybody get ready for that. Okay, let's just get ready now. We may not make it through. Verse one, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, only this time very ugly, very thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the banks. Verse four, and the ugly thin cows, surprising, 
ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh woke up. Then he fell back asleep and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and and blighted by the east wind. Verse 7, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke and behold, it was all a dream. The first seven verses of Genesis 41 describe a series of strange dreams of Pharaoh whose subject, surprisingly, is cannibalism. Seven fat, healthy cows are eaten by seven ugly, thin cows. Super shocking, super grotesque, super troubling. This is Pharaoh's first dream. The second similar theme, seven healthy ears of corn are consumed by seven unhealthy shriveled ears of corn. Dreams sharing a common thread of violence, consumption, and the number seven. Pharaoh is really impacted by these dreams. We know that because we observe his his. Uh, his behavior in verse eight, when morning comes, he gets all of the magicians and all of the wise men in Egypt together to help him understand what these dreams mean, right? He calls a, a council of sorts. Everybody come together. Like I am troubled. My spirit is troubled. Like that was a weird dream. Cows eating one another, corn on corn crime. Like what are we to do with all of this? This is the council that's been called together. All of the wise men, all of the magicians, only what we find is that no one can help Pharaoh understand what these dreams mean. No one knows. It's just really strange. And at this point, we are left to imagine that Pharaoh is probably quite frantic. Then in verse 9, Joseph is remembered. The cupbearer who had promised to remember Joseph, who had, who had, uh, who had so compassionately and, and accurately interpreted his dream two years prior while he was in prison, remembers now his offense. Now, perhaps as we see in verse 9, the cupbearer remembering Joseph, perhaps there is a double meaning here, right? He remembers his offense that landed him in prison, right? Which he's probably not so eager to talk about with Pharaoh. Um, and he remembers his forgetting of Joseph. Both of these things offenses. He remembers, oh, wow, I remember when I was in prison. Oh, wow, I remember the guy in prison. The end result is Pharaoh calling upon Joseph, at which point we need to step back and we need to revisit this idea of God's sovereign timing. We need to understand that Joseph is here remembered at just the right moment, which is a somewhat challenging concept for us to embrace. Because a number of years have passed since Joseph first interpreted this dream and he was forgotten by the cupbearer. There are moments in which we really struggle to understand the timing of God. Have you ever struggled to understand the timing of God? Yeah? Right? Why does it take so long for wrongs to be righted? 
Why does it take so long for justice to be experienced? Given the circumstances by which Joseph finds himself in prison in the first place, false accusations of advances on the wife of his master, one might expect that the right response of God would be the immediate extension of divine judgment against those who had contributed to Joseph's imprisonment and even the cupbearer for his forgetfulness, extending Joseph's stay in prison by two additional years. Only to now, as we come into chapter 41, have a series of dreams lead to this remembering of Joseph. Yet I want us to step back and I want us to think logistically for a moment. I want us to think logistically in light of what we see here, right, of what might have happened had Joseph been remembered as the cupbearer was first set free. I think it provides a new perspective for us on God's purposes. What if two years prior, following the liberation of the cupbearer, he had shared with Pharaoh Joseph's gift? Here's what this looks like, right? The cupbearer is called up for the birthday party, right? He serves in whatever capacity Pharaoh so desired. And then after the party, he comes up to Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, hey, by the way, I was in prison. You know this, right? Not telling you anything you don't know. And while I was there, I had this really strange dream and obviously no immediate resources to go about understanding what this dream meant. Only this fellow prisoner, Joseph, you may know him or you may not, who was able to interpret the dream, told me that you would call me up for the party and that I would be restored. And now here I am. Can you believe this? Can you imagine what Pharaoh's like, like response to that might've been? I think it's probably something like this. Yeah, yeah, that's great, <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's great. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. Or like, who are you again? Or like, why are you talking to me? Or why are we having this conversation? Like, we're just kind of like coming down from kind of the, the party atmosphere. And now you want to tell me about your dream and this guy who was able to tell you what it meant. That means absolutely nothing to me. Maybe that's what it looks like if, if, if the cupbearer had not providentially forgotten about Joseph being in prison in the first place. We are brought back to this understanding and this realization that God has not forgotten Joseph and Joseph has not forgotten God. God has shown Joseph his rise to power and his, his brothers and father bowing down before him in spite of what Joseph must, must have seen as an inauspicious route to getting here. In spite of this all, we have zero indication of Joseph questioning God. Like Joseph, while we have clarity as to the end, we're not quite sure how he's going to get there as we come into chapter 41. Only what we find is God sending, again, this dream to Pharaoh that troubles his spirit, leading him to call together this council and say, who in the world is able to interpret this for me? Remember, we spent a lot of our time last week talking about how, how the Lord's wisdom 
right? How, how the Lord's authority ought to inform and shape for us the way that we look at and understand the world, our place in it, and circumstances that we experience. Here, last week in Genesis chapter 40, we find two individuals who are struggling to understand what their dreams mean, having zero, right, ability to connect with any resources on the outside who would be able to tell them what it was all about. Here, we find the king of Egypt, right, with every resource at his disposal, still unable to understand or to find out what his dreams actually mean. God uses dreams, as we observe in these two chapters, to bring about his plan and purpose. Joseph doesn't know how this is going to happen, but it goes back to the beginning of his story that this is one way that God works. Two years, Joseph is left in prison. Only at the just the right moment, Pharaoh's troubled as a result of the, of the cannibalistic cows and corn. Doesn't know what these dreams mean. At just the right moment, the cupbearer remembers. And he's able to share with Pharaoh one who is able to, to interpret dreams. What an inauspicious route. That we have gotten here. But this is the way that God works. And as we consider redemptive history, we understand that this is indeed the way that God works. We have clarity as to the end of the redemptive narrative. God's blood-washed people residing in a new city with our good king with no shame and no concern. We don't exactly know what the in-between looks like. What we do know is this. We do know that the plan of God is unfolding exactly as he desires. Joseph is remembered and we are remembered and we have, as we stated in the beginning, these gifts that remind us of all of these things at just the right time. Joseph is remembered. Not only that, But we find through his imprisonment, God shaping in Joseph a confidence in his presence that enables boldness as he stands before Pharaoh. Not only does Joseph go from the pit to the position of power, but then he begins to exercise power. Look with me at verse 14 of Genesis chapter 41. Pharaoh hears the news. There's a guy in prison who can interpret dreams. So he sent and he called Joseph. And they quickly, I would imagine so, brought him out of the pit. This is the second pit we've seen, we've seen Joseph delivered from, right? And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. Nobody is able to give me any insight. Nobody is able to give me any type of relief whatsoever. But I have heard it said that that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now listen to what Joseph says in verse 16. This is just tucked away here, right? We're almost transitioning between details. But man, this is so deep. Man, this is so encouraging. Man, this is so powerful. Look at what he says in verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh. You've got it wrong, <laughs> right? You've got it wrong. It's, it's not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph's called before the king. 
and he does not waver. He does not buckle to this temptation that perhaps exists to tell Pharaoh what he might imagine that he wants to hear. Instead, he corrects Pharaoh. I don't imagine that Pharaoh gets corrected very often. You have said that I possess this power. What I'm saying to you is that it's not me. I've been brought up out of the pit in order to serve at your pleasure. And now I'm correcting like the sequence of events and what has brought all of this about and the power by which understanding and comprehension is able to be experienced. Joseph corrects Pharaoh and he redirects Pharaoh. He corrects Pharaoh and then he redirects his attention towards God. A God that Pharaoh not only does not believe in, but a God who by his very nature challenges Pharaoh's claim to the power when he says, it is not me, but God who will give you a favorable answer. Right, listen, uh, your authority, Joseph says, is limited. My authority, Joseph says, is limited, but God's authority is not limited. Pharaoh, your authority is limited. You have all of these resources at your disposal, and yet you're not able to come to a realization or comprehension of what these dreams mean. My authority is limited. How do we know that? Well, I've spent quite a number of years in a pit, and had I been able to remove myself from that circumstance, I would have. God, however, possesses this authority that is limitless. Joseph says, it's impossible for me to provide any type of answers about your welfare apart from God's intervention in this situation. Right? Joseph's message to Pharaoh is simple, right? Serving to inform our message to the world. And that is this, my God is superior. That's where he begins. He begins by focusing in on the superiority of God. God can do this. It's not me, it's not you, but it's God. Whether he is speaking to his cellmates or the king of Egypt, Joseph's message does not change. Joseph is immovable on this point. The encouragement is for you and I to be immovable on this point, right? To be immovable on this understanding and this realization that it is indeed God who possesses all power as he works through his people to bring about his purpose at just the right time. Reason, understanding, interpretation, purpose, these things belong to God. And for the church, we find here a beautiful illustration of conviction and application. Like Joseph, our message to our hearts and our message to those in our lives is this. Our God is better, right? Our message to our own hearts as we each seek to construct these these idols that we might offer ourselves to is this, that nothing that our hearts construct are better than God. Right? Nothing that we seek to place crown on is better than God. 
right? Nothing in this world that produces joy for us, joy that oftentimes serves to capture our attention and our affections is better than God. Our message to the world is that there is nothing that is better than our God. We see Joseph's purposeful boldness combined with God's displaying his superiority, his sufficiency, and his divine purposes. In verses 25 through 32, we read of Pharaoh's retelling of Joseph's, of his dream for Joseph's interpretation. For the sake of time, we're not going to reread that, but that's what we see there in verses 25 through 32. And through this, we find the message is quite simple. God's centrality in Joseph's interpretation and God's control over all of existence. Joseph's going to interpret this dream, but he's going to make sure sure to do so in in a way in which God occupies central position. That this idea that God controls all of existence will be continuously hammered home. His interpretation begins in verse 25. Look there with me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. These two things are connected. You see them as two separate dreams because you dreamt a dream and then you woke up and then you went back to sleep and you dreamt another dream and perhaps they're disconnected. But what we're actually finding is that they are, that they are one. Listen to what he says next. Beginning, middle, and end, God occupies a central position. Look with me at verse 25. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. What are these dreams all about? Notice we didn't spend like 35 minutes in the very beginning, like expositing the distinction between cows and corn, right? Like we're not, that's not what it's ultimately about. God is communicating something by way of these dreams. And that does not escape Joseph's attention. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 26 The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven ears. The dreams, he says, are one, verse 26, transition to verse 27. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years and the seven empty ears blithed by the east wind are also seven years of famine, verse 28. It is as I told Pharaoh, middle. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So at this point, we have two points of emphasis that Joseph draws out and they center in on God, what God is going to do. Verse 29, there will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume all the land. This thing is going to be mean. This is going to be wicked and there is no escape. Verse 31, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. Things are going to be so bad that we're not even going to be able to look back and remember how good they were. (laughs) Holy cow. As bad as things have ever been for me, I don't think there's ever been a point in which I go, man, I look back and I can't even remember the good times. Like I am in such a deep, dark hole that I can't even remember what was once good. That's how dire this situation is going to be. That's how desperate this situation is going to be. 
it will be very severe, Joseph says at the end of verse 31. Listen to what he says in verse 32. Here's the third time. All right, here's that, here's that third point. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. There is this, this emphasis on the centrality of God, on, on God's fixing these events in time and space and history to bring about his plan and purpose, to fulfill his mission. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 46, verses 10 and 11. He says this of the Lord, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is who God is and this is what he does. He sets into motion and he accomplishes his purpose. It's fixed. It's sure. It's been drilled down and set in concrete. It is immovable. Nothing that happens, no situation that arises and no circumstance that is, that is too good or too bad is able to bring about this, this wavering within the plan of God. That's what the prophet Isaiah says in verse 10. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's what Joseph is saying to Pharaoh. Right, we're, we're interpreting this dream and I'm telling you what it, what it means. But I want you to understand this, that, that exactly what I'm telling you, there is no avoidance at this point. Right, we can't change this. You can't change this. This is going to happen. There is a, a centrality to the, to the mind and to the work of God through Joseph's interpretation. Verse 25, 28, and 32, God is revealed. And is revealing what he is about to do and what he will surely bring us to pass, bring to pass. Joseph's words here remind us that the central character in the story of creation and redemption is God himself. The central character within the story of creation and redemption is God himself. The same one who is established as the catalyst for all things in this short monologue is through the story of the Bible shown to be the author of it all. The future of Egypt is established. God's work is fixed. Thus, even the king is but a footnote in this story. Remember we talked about the boldness of Joseph, the spirit-empowered boldness that he displays as he stands before Pharaoh? Consider this. Consider standing before a president or a king of a divine and sovereign nation and telling them, here's what's going to happen. And while you believe to yourself to possess all the power in the world, you can do nothing to change it. You can do nothing to thwart it. It is fixed. That's what Joseph says in verses 25, 28, and 32 to Pharaoh. The ruler of the, of the most mighty nation on earth stands before him. This is what God's going to do. And it's going to be difficult. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do to change it. Walter Bergman explains it this way. He says, the future in Egypt does not depend upon Pharaoh. 
says he does not get to decide. In fact, he goes one step further and he says this, Pharaoh is irrelevant. Pharaoh is is marginal to the future of the kingdom. Joseph has this point calmly announced to the Lord of Egypt that the future is out of his hands. Think about that for a second. The future is out of the king's hands because there's a better king. All right, there's a, there's a more powerful king. In Genesis 41, it is clear that Pharaoh can cause no future, nor can he reset the future that God will bring. We see in Pharaoh here God's use of the leaders of this world to affect history, not to make history. This is why Jesus says in response to Pilate, when he says, will you not speak to me? Don't you know I have authority to release you as well as authority to crucify you? What does Jesus say? He says this, he says, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. God is divinely working. In Genesis chapter 41 and in the chapters preceding, he is divinely working through Joseph's hardship, Pharaoh's rise to power. He is divinely working through Pilate and those who call for the crucifixion of the king of creation to bring about the accomplishment of his redemptive plan. This informs the way that Christians respond in the world. I think we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna stop um, at this point. Okay, this what we've just read this morning. Just understanding God's working in time and space and His elevation of Pharaoh into this position of power while giving him these dreams in order to liberate Joseph from his imprisonment, in order to bring about the rescue and salvation of many, including His own people, suppressing death. Right? All of this informs the way that Christians engage and interact with the events that we observe taking place in our world. Even when regimes act out of wickedness, celebrating injustice, the righteous hold confident to this understanding that our sovereign God always uses those to affect his purpose. God is never out of control. He is never at a loss, but he is always maneuvering human history towards his desired end, which is what? What are we moving towards? Remember, we said in the beginning, we need to know where we're going. It's helpful to know where this story is going, isn't it? And I don't mean this story. I mean, this story, like what it's all about. I mean, this story that continues to unfold. Where is it going? Where are we going? The resurrection of the righteous, right? The resurrection of God's people because Christ Jesus is alive. Good news. We too, having been made alive by the spirit will one day be living, dwelling, worshiping, adoring Jesus forever. That's where this is all going. The righteous being resurrected. 
the establishment of God's eternal kingdom and the final and ultimate judgment of evil and wickedness. And so when we ask this question, let me take us back to the beginning. What was the question in the beginning that we, that we talked about, right? Why does time happen the way that it does sometimes? Or why, do, why do things not happen more quickly? Why is evil not judged more quickly? Why is injustice not righted more quickly? As we prepare to come to the table and we take of the bread and the cup, we are reminded of this, of this moment in time and, and space in which the evils of men are leveraged to accomplish at just the right moment God's divine plan and purpose. We say that because that idea has to inform and shape the way that we live our lives. Okay, like that idea, we talk about application. Well, what do I do now that I have this? That was really helpful, but like give me a couple of, a couple of takeaways to stick in my pocket. Here's the takeaway, right? How does our understanding of God's work through Genesis 41 part one, we'll be back next week. Spoiler alert. How does God's word through Genesis 41 part one inform the way that we see and experience the world around us? That's the application. When we observe uh, perceived evil, right, and power, how do we respond as God's people? When we experience marginalization, How do we respond as God's people? When we experience injustice, how do we respond as God's people? Here's how we respond confidently, right? That God holds all things within his hand and that his plans in the same way that we observe Joseph nailing down in 25, 28, and 32 are indeed fixed. As we come to the table, let us remember the crucifixion and the resurrection of our King, the fixation of God's plan to redeem creation to himself through the death of our King, our better King, our great King, whom now we give our entire lives to. And we ask to inform by way of his word, the way that we go about living our lives. Do we get this? This is part one. We've got to come back and we've got to get part two next week. Are we okay? Let's pray and let's come to the table and let's worship our King.